You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So open our Bibles together to the scripture reading this morning. Philippians 4, verses 2 to 23. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, When I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Our text this morning is Philippians 4, 8-9. We'll read that again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, 
Put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, there was once a man who had a great many enemies. In many of his writings to his friends, he would refer to these enemies and he would speak about them. He used harsh words. And he even called them names. Names like dogs, deceitful workers, servants of Satan. In one of his writings, he even said that he wished his enemies would emasculate themselves. The man was the same man who wrote our text. The Apostle Paul often had reason to be blunt and even offensive when it came to his enemies. People who were more than just his personal enemies. They were enemies of the Gospel of Christ. Then we come to this text and we seem to find a different Paul. A Paul who wants people to dwell on the positive. To look on the bright side. The issue here is, on what do we focus? What is the, the center around which everything else in our lives turns? And I think this is a text that challenges us in several ways. I think one of the ways is that there is always this temptation for us to be known by what we stand against, rather than being known by what we stand for. That comes out in our history as well. Though many of us here today were not personally involved anymore, some of us were, but not many, we can look back to the early history of the Canadian Reformed Churches. We go back to the Netherlands in the 1940s, and there was a huge struggle. And back then it was easy to be known for being against certain things for being against certain conceptions of the covenant, for being against certain understandings of baptism in the church, for being against certain ways of doing church government. And we could add to that list. Well, today, some 60 years later, things are no different. The temptation still exists. We're going to be against a certain type of music in the church. We're going to be against certain practices for selecting office bearers. And I could, again, add all kinds of other examples. We have a long heritage of being against. And that's shaped who we are, for better or for worse. Don't get me wrong, there is a good and necessary being against certain things that are false and, and wrong, things that we have to stand against. The Apostle Paul himself, he clearly shows that in his many writings. Writings that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But yet our text challenges us on what do we focus? Where is the center for Christians? Is it in being against? Our text for this morning is framed with peace. Verse 7, Paul speaks about the peace of God which transcends all understanding. In verse 9, he writes about the God of peace, by which he means the God who produces peace for his people. And how does God do that? How does he bring about peace for his people? Well, Paul answers that question in Ephesians 2, 14, 
when he says that Jesus Christ is our peace. The Lord Jesus is the peace of God personified. The peace produced in God's people originates with Jesus Christ and His perfect life of obedience, His suffering and death, His resurrection, all His redemptive work. Apart from Christ, there is no peace. There is warfare between ourselves and God. We look around us, we see unbelievers around us, people we work with, people we study with, and sometimes the thought enters into our mind, they're very nice. They're very friendly people. They're sometimes even more friendly than some Christians. We have a hard time thinking in terms of the fact that these folks are at war with God. But if they are not, then the peace found in Scripture is meaningless. Then the hostility that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 2 is meaningless as well. All people sin. And sin is enmity. Sin is warfare against God. The scriptural truth is that unbelievers live with a fist raised in defiance of God. With their words, their lives, their thoughts, they're giving God the finger. They're slapping Him in the face. But with Christ, there's a beautiful change. No longer condemned, but accepted and justified. No longer enemies, but friends. No longer without hope and without God in the world, but now part of the family. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Part of the family. Because of Christ, Paul says in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. Because of Christ, someday our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like His glorious body. And we will dwell in perfect eternal communion with God. The Gospel proclaimed by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that there is lasting, real peace with God through Jesus Christ. And that forms the background to the call in our text to a new life. This new life has a new focus. It has a new center. And as we explore our text, we'll see that this new life involves a call to two things. First of all, to thoughtful reflection. And second of all, to meaningful action. Well, our text begins with two words. Finally, brothers. Now, the finally tells us that this is the last of a number of sections where Paul is giving instructions to the Philippian church. And he addresses them as brothers, reminding them again with those words that the peace of Christ has brought them into the family of God, where all believers are brothers and sisters. And we're brothers and sisters, not only of one another, but also of Christ. Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call believers his brothers. Finally, 
brothers. And then follows the list. Well, we're going to go through that list carefully in, in just a moment. But for now, look at the end of verse 8 and see, first of all, what's supposed to be done with this list. Paul says, think about such things. Instead of think, other translations like the New King James have meditate. The New American Standard has let your mind dwell on such things. Those are all good ways of translating the Greek word that's used here. Think, meditate, let your mind dwell on it, consider carefully, thoughtfully reflect. This is about what you focus your mind on, what you dwell on. And it's about what you focus your mind upon regularly or habitually. This isn't about taking some quiet time every day to sit back and reflect and relax and meditate on these things. This is a constant activity. This is about letting your mind dwell on such things as part of who you are throughout the day. Every waking moment. And not only on Sunday, but also on Monday and Thursday and every day of the week. Every hour of every day. The list begins with whatever is true. Truth in Scripture stands over against falsehood. According to Christ, the devil is the father of lies. Jesus, however, is the way, the truth, and the life. God is truthful, the source of all that is true. According to Ephesians 1.13, the gospel of our salvation is the word of truth. And so as a starting point, when Paul calls believers to thoughtful reflection on whatever is true, our thoughts can first of all go to the gospel of our salvation. The truth of God. That wonderful truth that has delivered us from eternal wrath. But we don't have to stop there. We can go further, because there, there are many other things that are true that fit with what God has revealed in His Word. We can give our thoughts to Christian music, as many of us have been doing this weekend. Christian music that captures the truth of God's Word. And we can even give our thoughts to what non-Christians have produced that is truthful. In His kindness and in His love for His people, as, as He restrains the wickedness in this world, God allows unbelievers to produce things that are truthful. A couple of examples. An unbeliever can produce a piece of music that truthfully captures the range of emotions any person might feel on a beautiful day in a picturesque meadow. We can give our thoughts to that, recognizing that as God's love and His kindness for His people. Another example, an unbeliever can come up with a mathematical proof that, ex that expresses a certain truth with numbers and equations. We can also give our thoughts to that. Seeing that as whatever is true. And we could add lots of examples. I think you get the point. Whatever is true is not limited explicitly to what is in Scripture. 
Nor is it limited to what believers do and believers think and believers say. But our understanding of whatever is true is definitely shaped by the truth of Scripture. And we consider and we reflect on whatever is true, even when it's produced by unbelievers, we do so through the lens of Scripture, having Scripture inform us. We can say much the same about whatever is noble. This refers to whatever is honorable, whatever is worthy of respect. We're to carefully reflect on what is majestic and awe-inspiring. And here, too, our thoughts should right away, first of all, be drawn to Scripture, to the Gospel, to the triune God. Think of Psalm 119, where the psalmist prays for the Word of God resulted in the, the longest psalm. He just can't stop. Think of the Gospel, which is truly majestic and and awe-inspiring. God the Son, coming to this earth to lay down His life for sinners. Amazing. Think of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three and one. A mysterious relationship we can never understand. We can never wrap our puny human brains around it. When was the last time you were driving to work or to school and you just turn off the radio, turn off the music and the talk? You just thought about the mystery of the Trinity. Letting your thoughts be drawn upwards in the, in the praise of your God. But here too, the text does not limit us to thinking about that which is purely spiritual, as if, if we can call it that. In fact, we should be careful about making a false dilemma between our thoughts of so-called religious things and, and the rest of what we deal with and think about in our lives. Life is one. And we should not compartmentalize our lives and our thinking. We're to focus on whatever is noble, majestic, and awe-inspiring. That could mean Mount Baker out in the distance, drawing your thoughts upward to the Creator. That could mean a a work of art that inspires. Some of you work in the medical profession. That could mean being in regular amazement at the intricacies of human anatomy. Or any other number of things that are honorable, worthy of respect, majestic, and awe-inspiring. The critical thing is that we we give our thoughts to these things habitually, regularly. And that we do so in connection with God. That we connect everything to Him. And if it cannot be connected to Him, then we have to wonder whether we should be giving our thoughts to it at all. Next, Paul speaks about whatever is right. I'd also say righteousness. The righteousness of Christ revealed in the Gospel. Again, that should be right there at the front of our minds when we hear that. We have received righteousness from God. We have received what we call an alien righteousness. An alien righteousness. That's not a righteousness that comes from outer space on UFOs, but a righteousness that does not come from us. It's Christ's righteousness that is imputed and imparted to us. 
We should meditate on this beautiful truth. We should be reflecting on God's righteous acts. And then we can also take our gaze downwards again to this earth, onto the, the horizontal level, and we can appreciate righteousness, moral uprightness in other human beings. We can do that with believers whose righteousness comes from faith and who do things according to God's law and for His glory. But we can also appreciate and applaud when unbelievers act inconsistently. When they perform deeds which just purely from a human, civic perspective are righteous. They're not righteous in the eyes of God, but from a human perspective, they are. For instance, we can be thankful that when there are natural disasters, it's not just Christians who extend assistance to help. We can be thankful that police officers, whether Christians or not, that they endeavor to maintain the right. We can be thankful that judges, whether Christians or not, they're there to carry out justice, even if they do so imperfectly in an imperfect system. Where right is done, we can be thankful, we can appreciate that, we can reflect on it, we can think about such things. Whatever is pure is next on the list. And purity is about conformity to God's standards. Purity refers to being without blemish and without stain. In the Old Testament, the lamb to be offered was to be without blemish or defect. An Israelite would never think of bringing a lamb to the temple that only had three legs. It was to be perfect. It was to be pure. And this pointed ahead to Christ, the Lamb of God, who was indeed without blemish or defect. And when we fix our minds on whatever is pure, this is where we can start. The Lamb of God, the pure, giving Himself for the impure. The clean, giving Himself for the unclean. Christ, washing us with His blood so that we become like Him. Pure. Without blemish. Without stain. And what is true in principle of us must also become true in practice. And part of that is giving our minds to pure thoughts rather than impure. Now we, I think when we hear that thinking pure thoughts, we, we right away think of a certain area. But this refers to a wide swath of areas including, but not only, the sexual. Pure thoughts refers to whatever conforms to God's law. Instead of letting our minds dwell on unholiness and law-breaking, we train our minds to delight in holiness and law-keeping. And that applies to a lot of our interaction with popular culture, whether it's music, TV shows, movies, magazines, websites, whatever. Where do we focus? On what do we fix our minds? With what do we fill our heads? Are we making a habit of thinking about what is pure? Then whatever is lovely. We could also say whatever is pleasing, acceptable, agreeable. 
Whatever deserves our love and affection. The Gospel is all those things, as is the Savior revealed in the Gospel. And then we can go beyond that and find other things that also deserve our love and affection. Things on which we can and we should fix our minds. If we were to brainstorm, pool all our thoughts together, I'll bet that we could come up with a list of dozens of things. But for those of us who are parents, just think about your children. Talk about what's lovely, dwelling on on what's lovely. Your children, they deserve your love and affection. You delight in them. They're lovely. As part of this, you can and you should set your thoughts on them. Reflect often, habitually, about how God has so richly blessed you with those children. Whatever is admirable is the last whatever on the list. Now, the word for admirable here is related to our English word euphemism. A euphemism is a nice way of saying something that's harsh-sounding or offensive. For instance, when we say, passed away, instead of when we mean that someone died, that's a euphemism. Now, in Greek, euphemos the word that's used here for admirable, means something that we can say nice things about. It's something of good repute, something praiseworthy and laudable. We're to let our minds dwell on things that can be praised, not only by men, but also things that can be praised by God. If we're habitually thinking about things that we know that God would never approve of, we've got a problem here. As redeemed believers, we aim to think God's thoughts after Him. If God delights in something, we should delight it and see it, delight in it and see it as admirable. If God hates something and He sees it as abominable, we should hate it and see it as abominable. Well, Paul then sums up all these things, this list with two words, the excellent and the praiseworthy. We're to give our minds and our thoughts to what God regards as upstanding and beautiful, to what God sees as excellent and worthy of praise. No more of the ugly, the impure, the mediocre. Now, a couple of questions can be raised after reading verse 8. First of all, why? Why should these be the things that we carefully, habitually Reflect on. Well, first of all, consider the majesty and exaltedness of the God whom we serve. More to the point, consider our Lord Jesus. Where do His thoughts dwell? On what does He focus? Doesn't He delight in what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable? And if if we are His body if we are united to Him, if our identity is in Him, if our destiny is to be completely conformed to His image, I think that would give us the motivation to see these things become increasingly true of ourselves as well. The second question from verse 8 is, how? How can we think about such things? Is this just a matter of willpower? 
saying I'm going to try harder. We hear so many voices distracting us. We have so many temptations. We're prone to wander, and we feel it. Loved ones, the answer is in Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit living in us. It begins with looking to Him in faith each day, fixing our eyes on Him who is our peace. In practical terms, that means drowning out the distracting voices by using the active noise reduction of God's Word. Spending time reading it and studying it. And then also bathing that time that we do that in prayer. In God's Word, Jesus Christ is revealed as our Savior. The one who deals with the curse of sin. And the power of sin. Justification and sanctification. It also means killing the temptations by letting His Word dwell richly in you. Filling your mind with His Word. Memorizing Scripture is a key discipline for us to grow as believers. Something to think about. And finally, it means putting an end to the wandering by becoming a tree firmly planted by streams of living water. The living water of God's Word, which reveals salvation in Christ. The living water of the Word as it's read and studied and preached will, by God's grace, cause you to grow. Through all these things, God will work in us to give us the strength to have thoughtful, careful reflection about what matters for our new life. Well, this new life also involves a call to meaningful action. It's not just about thinking, it's also about doing. And that's what we see in verse 9. Paul has one more whatever, but it actually covers four different things. At least at first glance, they appear to be four different things. In reality, they're basically only two. Paul speaks here about the Philippian believers putting into practice what they had learned or received from him. Now, learning and receiving are basically the same thing. They refer to what happens when someone teaches. So what was it that Paul taught them? It was what he himself had received from Jesus Christ. He taught them the gospel. For instance, he taught them about peace and reconciliation with God through the blood of Christ. He taught salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But he didn't stop there. Then he also went on to teach them what a redeemed life looks like. He taught them that believers recognize Jesus as Lord over every aspect of their lives. And for us today, that means first of all that like the Philippians, we have to put the gospel into practice by believing it and by cherishing it. 
Never forgetting the elementary principles of our salvation in Christ. As often as we hear the Gospel, we ought to accept it and believe it. Never taking it for granted. Never just assuming it. Second, it means that we too put into practice the recognition of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has authority over the sex we have, the money we spend, the food we eat, the websites we browse, the words we speak, the places we journey. He has authority over the attitudes we project, the ideas we entertain, the friends we embrace. Jesus is Lord over the shows we watch, the drinks we consume, the hobbies we enjoy, and the work we do. As believers redeemed by grace, we recognize that Christ has all authority over all people and all things without any exception whatsoever. And our lives grow to reflect that recognition. We say that Jesus is Lord, and we put that into practice in our lives. Paul also speaks about what the Philippian believers have heard and seen in him. This refers to Paul's example in speech and deed. This is related to what he said in Philippians 3.17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul has said similar things elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, at first glance, it almost sounds arrogant. But we have to read these kinds of passages through the lens of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. There too he says, follow my example. But then he adds, as I follow the example of Christ. You see, it wasn't so much about following Paul, but following Paul as he followed Christ. And this was especially relevant in the time of the Apostles when the Gospels were not yet written. The Apostles were pictures of how Christ lived and walked because they were eyewitnesses, they were ear witnesses to His life, His ministry on earth. And today we no longer have Apostles, but we do have the complete Word of God. And that Word of God contains the testimony of the apostles, their testimony to the example of Christ, both the the witness as to how He Himself lived and also how the apostles lived in His immediate footsteps. There's no question that the Bible teaches us to follow Christ's example, to walk in the footsteps of our Master. But at the same time, we recognize that there is still a difference between Christ and ourselves. There are things that He did. There are things that He said that we cannot do, that we cannot say. There remains a difference between the Creator and the creature. And to understand where we can follow Christ's example, we can look to the Apostle Paul as a fellow creature. Now we could survey his life and we could look at all kinds of different things. Let's just focus on one aspect 
an aspect that also comes out in Philippians. That's humility. Paul's humility. Comes out in various passages of his letters. For instance, in Romans 7, he calls himself a wretched man. In 1 Timothy 1, he acknowledges himself to be the worst of sinners. And then in Philippians 2, he calls the believers in Philippi to follow in the same path of humility, not because of Paul, but because of Christ. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to rhapsodize about Christ's humiliation and then also his exaltation. So as Christ was humble, as Paul was humble in his footsteps, so also let us be humble. Put it into practice. In humility, count others better than yourselves. Our text concludes by saying, and the God of peace will be with you. It simply means that obeying these instructions, living out of faith, the Philippians, and also us, will have God present to bless them. The God of peace who has come near through Jesus Christ will be constantly present through His Holy Spirit. He'll be present to help. You can bank on that. God's Word leads us to be people whose thoughts and lives, whose words and deeds are centered on the true, the noble, the right, the pure, the lovely, the admirable, the excellent, and the praiseworthy. And those things, as we've seen, are exemplified in Christ and the Gospel. What we want, above everything else, to be known as being for. You want people to be able to say that about you, don't you? That that brother, that sister, he, she, is known as being for the Gospel, for Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's now pray that God would strengthen us with His Word and Spirit so that we can do these things, so that we can reflect thoughtfully and live meaningfully in the light of them. Let's pray. Our Father, O God of peace, we confess Jesus Christ as our peace with you. He is the truth. He is noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. And so is the gospel which reveals him. In the gospel, we know that we find what is truly excellent and praiseworthy. Help us with your spirit and word to let our minds dwell on these things, not only as they're revealed in your word, but also manifested everywhere in creation. Father, please help us not only to take every thought captive to you, but also to meaningfully live what we believe. Help us to live in recognition of the Lordship of our Savior. Give us strength with your Spirit and guide us with your Word so we follow His example where we ought to. We pray that through this, we, your redeemed people, would evermore be for the praise of your glory. We pray in Christ, who is our peace. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web 
at www.langleycanrc.org.